Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Mary Crawford's harp. For this episode, we are so excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Lydia Chang. In addition to her doctorate in musicology from the City University of New York, Lydia has a master's in historical performance on the Baroque flute from McGill's Schulich School of Music and a second master's in historical musicology from the University of Massachusetts. She has performed as a soloist and with a number of period instrument ensembles, in addition to releasing two albums of Regency-era dance music, some of which can be heard on the BBC's recent adaptation of Poldark. As a scholar, Lydia's primary focus is on the intersection of literature, gender, aesthetics, and music performance practices in the long 18th century. She has also served as the managing editor for Women in Music, a journal of gender and culture, which makes her the perfect guest to discuss Mary Crawford and her heart performance in Mansfield Park. We are so excited to have you with us today, Lydia. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into the episode and, and all of our many, many questions for Lydia, we wanted to start by giving some context on what's going on with Mary Crawford's harp. So in Mansfield Park, this is early on in the novel, Mary and Henry have arrived and they're visiting their sister at the parsonage at Mansfield. And Mary's there to stay for an extended visit. So she, of course, must have her instrument. So the quote that we're going to read here is kind of when she finally, her instrument has finally arrived and she is now ready to put on some performances. So here's here's the quote. Miss Crawford's attractions did not lessen. The harp arrived and rather added to her beauty, wit, and good humor. For she played with the greatest obligingness, with an expression and taste which were very peculiarly becoming. And there was something clever to be said at the close of every air. Edmund was at the parsonage every day to be indulged with his favorite instrument. One morning secured an invitation for the next, for the lady could not be unwilling to have a listener, and everything was soon in a fair train. A young woman, pretty, lively, with a harp as elegant as herself, and both placed near a window, cut down to the ground, and opening on a little lawn, surrounded by shrubs in a rich foliage of summer, was enough to catch any man's heart. The season, the scene, the air were all favorable to tenderness and sentiment. It's like the opening of just a really good romance novel. It really is. <laughs> well, I love that it just kind of sets like an entire scene. This is this is Mary like on point. She is she is ready to perform. She's got a stage set. She is ready to go. So Lydia, can you start off by giving us a brief description of the harp itself, particularly related to some of the innovations on the instrument and music from this time period? There were a few different variables contributing to the harp's popularity in Georgian England. First, it had a strong association with the lyre of Greco-Roman culture. So you think of the iconography of Apollo and the Muses and Orpheus, you know, strumming their lyres. And that made it an object of fascination for an enlightenment thinking and aesthetic sensibility that was so much in vogue in this period. Then in the 18th century, we should consider that the harp was becoming very fashionable among the aristocratic elite in France. Marie Antoinette, for example, played the harp. And though the English middle class were generally very wary in that period, maybe always <laughs> about fashions imported <laughs> from France, <laughs> the English nobility tended to embrace whatever was trendy on the continent. So social climbers who were like trying to kind of ascend towards the nobility, uh, like Mary Crawford, might have gravitated towards the harp as a symbol of, of status and also of a cosmopolitan worldview. 
And finally, another thing to consider is the pedal technology that developed in the 18th century, which was making it easier for the harp to play the increasingly chromatic music of, of the period. What do you mean by chromatic? Oh, yeah, great question. So we think of, I don't think I want to sing a chromatic scale. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, fa, mi, re, do is part of a diatonic scale. And chromatic notes split those intervals in half. So it's a smaller division of the scale that we know. And most of the music that was being played before the 18th century was actually more modal, especially in the British Isles. And that didn't need a lot of these sort of chromatic pitches. That's actually why still like Irish flutes, for example, don't have a, a key to make them fully chromatic. But in Western Europe, over the course of the 18th century, and definitely into the 19th century, all the instruments, all the wind instruments, that is, were getting a mechanical overhaul so that they were being made more diatonic and then more chromatic. So the harp is no exception to this. It had been a kind of a folk instrument and now was being turned into an instrument that could play nice with these other kinds of um, orchestral instruments. It needed to be able to play chromatically. So musical instruments were required to have more tonal flexibility in this period. However, the kind of music that someone like Mary Crawford would have played, like for Edmund, for example, would not have been very adventurous tonally or very virtuosic. This was like really easy music, like designed to be very pleasant and lovely and like she shouldn't be exerting herself playing it. We don't want her sweating all over the harp. Totally. Not sweating, not doing anything like unladylike. <laughs> and it should have been like also not challenging to the listener. Edmund should have just been able to kind of watch her and kind of listen passively, but mostly watch her play. <laughs> Let it wash over him like a choir of angels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. And so when we think about like what actual kind of harp Mary Crawford would have been playing, it's a bit hard to say because the narrator doesn't give us very much. We can assume just based on the time period, we're assuming it was based around the first decade of the 1800s. It was published, what, 1814? So somewhere around there. The pedal harp was definitely more popular than the lever harp. So pedals are replacing levers in this period. The lever was a little, um, well, you can imagine just like a lever that would change the string tension so that the pitch would be raised one half step to make it easily chromatic. But the problem with levers, or at least the problem with levers and 19th century music, is that you have to set the lever before you start playing the piece. So you have to know what key you're going to be in for the whole piece. It's hard to play and switch them. So the pedal solves this problem by being something that you can depress that changes the pitch of the string. While actively playing. While actively playing, exactly, yeah. So it's more likely that she was playing something like a single-action pedal harp. The double-action harp did come about around this time, but the first patent was, I think, 1810 or 1811. That's what I was seeing was 1810, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sebastian Gerard in, in London. And it's just not... I don't think that Austin would have encountered one in her life by then when she was writing this. She did, however, hear one harp concert in 1811 with the harpist, the German harpist, Johann Reipart, who I think would maybe not have been playing a double action harp yet. I think it would have been a bit soon. 
But the other thing to consider about the harp here is that we do know that she hasn't transported in a barouche by her brother, right? Right. And the double action harp was bigger and heavier than the single action harp. So I would be inclined to think that the single action harp would fit more comfortably in a barouche. Yeah, transportation was actually like one of the major details that Austin gives us about the harp, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the trials and tribulations. You just there's, cannot get a cart for love or money this time of year. Without offending the hay in the parish. <laughs> right, right, right. That becomes a big, a big problem. I mean, I also think that's one of the things that makes the harp sexy is its mobility. Whereas the piano was a stationary instrument, like a big piece of furniture that anchored a woman to her own domestic space. A harp was an instrument that could be transported really wherever wherever she wanted to go. Much more like the manly instruments, uh, the masculine instruments like the flute and the violin and the cello. They represented more of like masculine mobility in the world. The harp is sexy for a lot of reasons, but one of them I think is <laughs> because of its mobility. And that tracks with Mary's character as well. The fact that she's a very transient character in terms of like she's she's flitting from place to place within the novel itself. And so the fact that she's willing to, to transport her harp, I think I think it signals a lot about her character as well as actually her personal circumstances. Totally, a kind of independence of spirit and means. So can you explain to us a little bit more, discuss a little bit more about this gendered aspect of, of the harp? You know, you mentioned that there are some of these, these elements that are associated with specific instruments. Can you tell us a little bit more about the gendered aspects of the harp, the visual performance? I mean, this is a sexy, flirty instrument, right? So like, <laughs> can you tell us it a little is. bit more about that? Totally. And it's worth mentioning because we take it for granted, I think, in, in our modern age where we have easy access to lots of recorded music, that in Austin's day, really all musical experiences were necessarily visual. And so one function of that very visual music culture was that music making was a tremendously important site of gender performance for, for men and women, and especially in Georgian England. For, for many and complex reasons. The continent seemed to be more kind of loosey-goosey about who could play what instruments and how gender was performed. They always are. They always, they always are. are. The aren't they? <laughs> that was like, anyway, sorry, that's a tangent. That's like all my dissertation is about, about how the continent was a place of depravity. <laughs> At least according to the English. Just stodgy old English. You, just, you can't trust what they're doing over there in France. <laughs> right. <laughs> or Italy. Oh, God. Don't even get, it, get them started. But yeah, so, so in England, there were like really prescribed gendering of, of, of instruments. And um, so there were things, the instruments that men could play, which were the flute, the violin, and the cello, basically. And I should specify that when I say men, I mean gentlemen, like men who didn't work. Because there were certainly professional musicians who were men who played other instruments. They were mostly foreigners at this time, not like Englishmen. But English gentlemen certainly would not have been caught dead playing like the piano or the, or the harp. But so the instruments that women played were the piano and the harp. So before we talk too much about how sexy the harp is, I think <laughs> we have to like talk about the less sexy, more modest cousin, which is the forte piano. <laughs> so women of the middle and upper classes in Georgian England had a lot of leisure time. And they were supposed to pass that time in the pursuit of polite accomplishments, drawing, dancing, sewing, and music. But these activities were, they were designed to keep ladies pleasantly occupied and keep their 
That's the great Erasmus Darwin quote. Keep their delicate minds free of dangerous imaginations, whatever those are. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But yeah, so when it comes to musical skills for these women, it's important to note that it was never expected that they would become like virtuosi and like have a performing career. Their musical talents were valued really only in as so far as they contributed to the woman's virtuous and chaste femininity, which was characterized primarily by her cheerfulness, patience, and obedience. (laughs) (laughs) And what's creepier is they, they actually really thought that the repetitive nature of music practice would like instill those virtues and amplify a woman's like innately submissive character. Oh my goodness. I mean, with that in mind, then naturally the most appropriate instrument for a woman to play was the keyboard. Because as I mentioned before, it's this heavy stationary object that really anchors you to the home. It doesn't move anywhere. It stays at home. And like, if you go to somebody else's house, you can play their piano, but like your piano is in your home. And the harp is, you know, sexy for a lot of obvious reasons, right? For example, as opposed to the piano where the player is basically seated just like they would be politely, like with their hands in their lap, all they have to do is sort of move their hands up to the keyboard and nothing else really moves in their body. Another thing to consider is that pianos in this period were much smaller or narrower in range. So the forte piano constrained a woman's movement in so many ways, like uh, their mobility in the world, their, their bodies at the instrument. It was a kind of... It was a control on a woman's body in a way. And the harp is the way that a a player sits at the harp. um, Her arms would extend away from her, right? Drawing on the profile, drawing the gaze into her body, right? The harp was placed between the legs, which suggested. And if the harp had pedals, and it certainly probably did for Mary Crawford, then you would see a little bit of foot And maybe some ankle. Cool it down, Lydia. This is getting a little too salacious. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to put the explicit tag on this episode. Yeah, warning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so those are like, you know, the obvious ways that this harp is very sexy visually. But for me, what's really sexy about the harp is, like I said before, how, how mobile it is, how portable it was for a woman. That it wasn't really an anchor to the domestic space. You could pick it up. I mean, it's it's big and heavy, but I think a single action harp would have been, they were about five, a little over five feet tall, these harps. I wonder if, if there would have been a certain, I mean, of course, you have to take your gloves off to perform any of these mm-hmm. instruments. Yeah. So yeah. so they're already showing more skin than kind of <laughs> your, your day-to-day interactions if there's, a, if there's a gentleman watching. So there's a lot of your figure that's showing off as well, I would imagine. Yes, it definitely shows off the figure. I think the idea of removing your gloves and possibly a glimpse of ankle. And you have to just think like the whole picture that Mary Crawford, especially in this time period, she's wearing that kind of ampere waisted gown and she's going to have like a full Grecian goddess look. Oh, yeah. She's like, just let me tinkle these harp strings for you while Edmund just like falls into like a love haze coma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, and that kind of fits also with this idea of the way that Austin sets up that scene with the fact that, that she is actually being very framed in this, the fact that she is 
visually on display for for Edmund um, and the fact that like you know he's like oh it's his favorite thing to do is watch her practice but the fact that she is very much so especially in that phrase where a young woman pretty lively with a harp as elegant as herself and both placed near a window and then that setting of the frame like of course Edmund's gonna fall in love with this well there are some scholars who who have I mean this is a little old school reading of this kind of imagery and and Mary but and because there are so many nautical themes going on in the oh, novels. Sure. Sure. Some scholars are have likened Mary and her heart playing to like the sirens of Greek mythology playing their lyres and like, you know, luring men, Edmund being lured. Mary Crawford is a Starbucks mermaid. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, along those lines, Lydia, why do you think it's significant in the scope of the novel that Mary Crawford plays a harp? Like, why do you think that Austin... You know, we talked a little bit about the mobility aspect, but why the harp for Mary? Why do you think Austin chose to have her play the harp as opposed to being, you know, a singer or a watercolorist or any of the other kind of delicate ladylike accomplishments? So for one thing, it does show her sort of urbane cosmopolitan-ness in a way that just being a singer or a watercolorist or a pianist wouldn't do. And it goes really nicely with the way that Mary always is dropping in these little French expressions that she uses French throughout the novel. It ties her to the continent, which, as we've talked about, is sort of, you know, promiscuous, a sign of promiscuity. And there's also, um, I don't know if, you've, if you guys have read much of Juliet Wells, a scholar who's written a lot about Austin, and she wrote a really wonderful article about Mary and her heart playing and moral ambiguity. And I really like her reading of Mary's heart playing as kind of showing the oscillation in her character between selfishness and generosity. That's something I, I've been thinking about, that there's a scene in the parsonage when Fanny gets stuck after the rainstorm and she sees the harp and asks some questions about it. And then Mary is like, all attentiveness and kindness. And then, oh, let me play for you. What would you like to hear? And then when Fanny is ready to leave, Mary sort of manipulates her into staying by telling her that she wants to play Edmund's favorite heir. And it's pretty cruel if we imagine that Mary knows something of the love triangle that they're in and, and that she doesn't see Fanny as a threat to this budding romance with Edmund. And, and so I know I, I, I can see maybe Mary's character as reflecting some of the cultural societal ambivalence around the heart. It's not all bad and sex and depravity, <laughs> but it's also like ooh, a little bit suspect, you know? So I, I think that um, there's both of these things going on. Uh, as I mentioned before, with this, the Greco-Roman kind of society, and um, they were all about the Greeks in England at this time. And that was like the pinnacle of like intellectual thought. Yeah, this very neoclassical approach to everything. Right. So there's something very sophisticated about the harp in, in that respect but also the French play it and Marie Antoinette plays it and, oh, they, she holds it between her legs. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so where else does the heart feature in, in Austin's works or life or adaptations? I mean, this is, this isn't a one-off when we, when we see Mary with the, with her harp, you know, it's a, it's a big moment for harps in Austin's world, but I mean, it's, it's happening beyond Mansfield Park, right? Yes. It is worth noting that Mary Crawford is the only harpist who's exclusively a harpist. So Georgiana Darcy, she also, she primarily plays the forte piano, but also plays the harp. 
The Ms. Musgroves primarily play fortepiano, but also play harp. And that was the normal relationship of a young lady to the harp, that it was an ancillary instrument. Maybe if there were two like sisters, then one could play fortepiano while the other played the harp. And there were plenty of duets that were published specifically for that purpose. So being exclusively a harpist is, is kind of unusual and something that's striking about, about Mary. So as far as other harps in like Austin's life, I don't know that she knew many harpists except her cousin who then became her sister-in-law, Eliza Hancock. And there has been some suggestion that Eliza was the like real life inspiration for Mary Crawford. Mm -hmm. Yes. Eliza was kind of, um, she was also very continental. Very continental. Yeah. She married a French count and lived in France and then fled during the revolution and her husband was guillotined. And then she remarried Henry Austin, but had also like had a flirtation with one of Austin's other brothers. And she had a reputation for being really witty and yeah. clever. So the kind of sparkling personality that, that Mary definitely has. Right, right. So I wanted to ask you, like slightly off topic, but I've noticed you've been saying forte piano, and I feel like we always hear it called the pianoforte. Is that like, have we been saying it wrong? Like, are either way acceptable? I'm, I'm just, I know like people listening are going to be curious about that. That's a great question because I was saying it pianoforte for a long time because I had only read it in Austin novels and period novels. And that was what it was called at the time. Now they call it the forte piano. But you're not wrong. You're just speaking in Georgian English. Gotcha. So this yeah. is like how current day musicologists would refer to the instrument. As forte piano. Right. Yeah, great question. Okay, so we also wanted to just talk a little bit about how some of these instruments are represented in the Austin adaptations. So, of course, we have to start with the 1999 Mansfield Park, where I think the harp is, they don't like spend a lot of time getting into the technical aspects of it, but... But what they do do, which I really appreciate, is they they actually do take the time to set up this really delightful, like, B-roll scene where they have Mary's harp being transported. They actually show it strapped to the top of a coach, and they've got someone who's also... They've got a laborer walking past, and he's got, like, a, a scythe for cutting hay, because that's the whole, you know, whole reason that the delay happened, that she couldn't get her harp. And so they have this, like little funky music going on while the harp is being transported. And you see the haymaker just kind of like looking at it like, what? <laughs> so you do get some context there that like, you know, Mary is a little bit out of touch with the importance of, you know, why her harp was delayed. You know, she gets really impatient about, ah, you know, why can't I get my harp here? But I can't, you know, I can't hire a coach for lover money. But it's, I think that that might also be indicating something about her character where she's, she's not attuned to what's going on around her in a rural context. You know, she's coming from the, the metropoles. Um, and so when she comes to rural Mansfield Park, she doesn't quite understand why, why it's so hard for her to get her harp. So I love that they take just that, like, I mean, the whole B-roll scene takes like three seconds, but it does a whole lot of visual lifting in terms of explicating the portability of the harp, but also the way that it had to be transported because Mary was so insistent without being aware of the larger rural scene that was going on. I'm so glad you brought that to my attention. I, I missed it when I, I, in my viewing of it, and I'll have to go back and, and, and see that. And yeah, that's a really, it's, it's such an important point that showcases her selfishness in a way, or like lack of empathy for farmers and just not understanding why it would be important for them to get the hay in. And <laughs> yeah, and when that happens in the novel, um, it's 
she she's like, ah, what the harp? And Eben's like, but surely you understand the importance of this. And Fanny's like, are you not seeing the problem, Edmund? Are you <laughs> not seeing the problem? Um, so before the harp even arrives, Fanny and the harp are kind of like having attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's a really excellent point. <laughs> One of the other things that they do in that adaptation is that they do show, you know, they, they do have the actress who plays Mary Crawford kind of sort of speaking between the songs, you know, like she plays her song and she's like, that's Edmund's favorite and having that whole moment, both in the adaptation of Mansfield Park, where they show her kind of speaking after the performance, as well as in the novel, you know, Austin makes it very clear that she has like little charming quips to say after (laughs) every single piece that she's playing, like she's, she's doing a full kind of open mic situation here. (laughs) So would it be more common for a harpist to kind of talk between pieces as opposed to other instruments? It seems very like very typical of, of, of a Mary Crawford type person at their instrument, um, whether she's at a harp or a piano, that maybe she would be someone who would just volunteer a little witty something after after every piece or say a bit about the piece before she played it. Whereas maybe other ladies would be more demure and just play their piece and receive their praise and, and sit down. So it's less about the instrument itself and probably more about her character. I think so. I, that's my reading of it. I wonder if Mary Bennett would have been prone to, like, explicating her pieces. She'd be like, let me tell you about the technical aspects of this this music. Yes, Mary Bennett would have, like, totally done a music theory lesson and told you all about, like, (laughs) basso continuo, like, (laughs) after she played her big, long hour concerto. Yeah. (laughs) Also very sexy. Maybe that's what Mr. Bennett was preempting when he's like, you've entertained us long enough. Please don't give us the theory lecture. Please not again. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Lydia, thank you so much for coming on and chatting about Mary Crawford's very sexy harp with us. Just (laughs) we were both really excited. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and find your music, all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, I have a website, www.lydiachang.com. And there you can find some recordings of me and some links to to more recordings and or updates about when I'm going to perform next and where. I'm on Instagram, Lydia AC altogether. Thank you again. It was truly just so much so fun. fun. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this was such a delight. Thank you again to Dr. Lydia Chang for joining us for a discussion on Mary's Harp. You can find us on Instagram at thethingaboutaustin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things and find us at our website, thethingaboutaustin.com. And you can email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And join us next time when we discuss Louisa Musgrove's daredevil antics at the Cobb. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.